0: Thank you for downloading this episode of A History of the World in a 100 Objects from BBC Radio 4. The first four programmes of this week were about the European Enlightenment's project of mapping and understanding new lands. Today's object is from China, at a time when it was pursuing its own enlightenment under the Lung Emperor, who, like his European contemporaries, devoted considerable attention to exploring the world beyond his own borders. In 1756, for instance, he sent out a multicultural task force, two Jesuit priests, a Chinese astronomer and two Tibetan lamas to map the territories that he'd annexed in Asia. The knowledge they gained spread across the world and with it the Chenlung Emperor's reputation. The object in this programme is another product of the emperor's intellectual curiosity, this time about the Chinese past. It's a jade ring called a bee, spelt B-I. This jade bee, already over 3,000 years old when the emperor decided to study it, is a fine, plain disc with a hole in the centre, of a type often found in ancient Chinese tombs. The emperor took the unadorned bee and then had his own words inscribed on it. And in doing so, he transformed the ancient bee into a narrative of the 18th-century Chinese Enlightenment.
1: It's an exploratory document. It reminds us that documents can be made of jade or bronze just as much as on paper, of course.
2: The piece is represented. There's a deep link between the ancient past and now. It's a very cultural, but also political.
0: A history of the world in a hundred objects. Jade B. From China, inscribed in the 18th century. For Enlightenment Europe, China was a model state, wisely governed by learned emperors. The philosopher and writer Voltaire wrote in 1764, One need not be obsessed with the merits of the Chinese to recognise that their empire is the best that the world has ever seen. Rulers everywhere wanted a piece of China at their court. In Berlin, Frederick the Great designed and built a Chinese pavilion in his palace at Sanssouci. In the grounds of Kew, you can still see the ten-storey Chinese pagoda erected by George Third. In the nearly 60 years of the Chenlong Emperor's reign, from 1736 to 1795, China's population doubled, its economy boomed, and the empire grew to its greatest size for five centuries, more or less to its modern extent. It covered over four and a half million square miles. The emperor was a member of the Qing dynasty, which had displaced the Ming about a 100 years before and which would rule China until the beginning of the 20th century. The Qianlong emperor, owner of the Jade Bee that's the object of this programme, was a shrewd intellectual and a tough leader, happy to proclaim the superiority of his territorial conquests over those of his predecessors and to assert for his own Qing dynasty the backing of the heavenly powers. In other words, he claimed the mandate of heaven. The military strength of the majestic Great Qing is at its height. How can the Han, Tang, Song or Ming dynasties, which exhausted the wealth of China without getting an additional inch of ground for it, compare to us?
2: No fortification has failed to submit, no people have failed to surrender. In this, truly, we look up gratefully to the blessings of the blue sky above to
0: proclaim our great achievement. This emperor was a successful military leader, an adroit propagandist and a man of culture, a renowned calligrapher and poet, a passionate collector of paintings, ceramics and antiquities. The astonishing Chinese collections in the palace museums today hold many of his precious objects. Our bee is one that thoroughly engaged the Qianlong Emperor's attention, and it's not hard to understand why. It's a thin disk of jade, pale beige in colour, and just a little bigger than a CD, but with a hole in the middle with a raised edge around it. We know from similar objects found in tombs that this bee was probably made around 1200 BC. We don't know what it was for, but we can see clearly enough that it is very beautifully crafted. When the Chenlong Emperor examined this bee, he thought it was both beautiful and intriguing. He was moved to write a poem recording his thoughts on studying it,
2: and he had the poem inscribed on the bee itself. Wei Wan Gu Suo Wu It is said there were no bowls in antiquity. But if so,
0: where did this stand come from?
2: It is said
0: that this stand dates to later times. But the jade is antique. Modern scholars know that jade bee discs are usually found in tombs. The Qianlong Emperor thinks that the bee looks like a bowl stand, a type of object used since antiquity in China. He then shows off his knowledge of history by discussing arcane facts about ancient bowls and finally decides that he cannot leave this bee without a bowl. This stand is made of ancient jade, but the jade bowl that once went with it is long gone. As one cannot show a stand without a bowl, we have selected a ceramic from the ding kiln for it. By combining the bee with a much later object, the emperor has ensured that, in his eyes at least, the bee now fulfills its aesthetic destiny. It's a very typical Chen way of addressing the past. You admire the object's beauty, you research the historical context, and you present your conclusions to the world as a poem. In the process, he created two new works of art, the poem, which was included in his literary works, and the bee. The Emperor's poem is incised in beautiful calligraphy on the wide ring of the disc and it fuses object and interpretation in what he thought was an aesthetically pleasing form. Chinese characters are spaced so that they radiate out from the central hole like the spokes of a wheel and these are the very words that I've been quoting. Many of us might see this as defacing an ancient object, as a kind of desecration, but that's not how the Qianlong Emperor saw it. He thought that the writing enhanced the beauty of the bee, but he also had a more worldly, political purpose in inscribing his poem on this
1: jade bee. Historian of China, Jonathan Spence. There was very much a sense that China's past had a kind of coherence to it, and so this new Qing dynasty wanted to be enrolled, as it were, in the records of the past, as having inherited the glories of the past and being able to build on them and to make China even more glorious. And Qianlong was, there's no doubt about it, a great collector. This was imperial centralized collecting, with a national focus, but also exploring other realms of world art at the same time. And there is a bit of nationalism about his collecting, I think. They wanted to show that Beijing was the center of this Asian cultural world. And the Chinese, according to Voltaire and other thinkers in the French Enlightenment, the Chinese did indeed have things to tell us, Europeans, as it were, in the 17th and 18th century, important things about life, morality, behavior, Learning, genteel culture, the delicate arts, the domestic arts.
0: And politics. The Qing dynasty had one major political handicap. They were not Chinese. They came from modern Manchuria on the northeastern border. They remained a tiny ethnic minority, outnumbered by the native Han Chinese by about 250 to 1, and they were famous for a number of un Chinese things, among them an appetite for large quantities of milk and cream. So was Chinese culture safe with this Qing dynasty? In this context, the Qianlong Emperor's appropriation of ancient Chinese history was a deft act of political integration. His greatest cultural achievement was the complete library of the Four Treasuries, the largest anthology of writing in human history, encompassing the whole canon of Chinese writing from its origins to the 18th century, Digitised today, it fills 167 CD-ROMs. The Chinese poet Yang Lian recognises the propaganda element in the Chenlong Emperor's lyrical description on the bee, and he takes a rather dim view of his poetry
2: as well. When I look at this bee, I have some very complex feeling. On one side, I'm still very much appreciated. I love, you know the feeling which is a link with the ancient Chinese cultural tradition, because it was a very unique phenomenon, which is a start from a long time ago and never broken and continually developed until today, whatever had been difficult times. You know, in that case, the jade is always represent the great past. But another side, the darker side, the beautiful things always been used by the rulers who even had often bad taste. And so they don't mind to destroy the ancient things with their bad writing. And so they can carve the emperor's poem on the beautiful piece. And then also through the writings, they always try to do a little propaganda, which is, for me, very familiar.
0: The Qianlong Emperor was no master of poetry. He seems to have mixed classical Chinese with vernacular forms to what's generally thought to be poor effect. But that didn't hold him back. He published over 40,000 compositions in his lifetime, part of his elaborate campaign to secure his place in history. And he was largely successful. Although the Qianlong Emperor's reputation dipped dramatically in the communist period, it is once again strong in China. And recently, a very satisfying discovery has been made. You may remember that the emperor wrote that as you can't show a stand like this without a bowl, he had selected a bowl from the ding kiln for it. Very recently, a scholar identified in the collections of the Palace Museum Beijing a bowl that carries the same inscription as the one on this disc. It is undoubtedly the very bowl chosen by the Qianlong emperor to sit in this bee. As he handled and thought about the bee, the Chenung Emperor was doing something central to any history based on objects. Thinking about a distant world through things is not only about knowledge, but about imagination, and it necessarily involves an element of poetic reconstruction. With the bee, for example, the emperor knows that it's an ancient and cherished object, and he asks the question we're all still asking, what was it for? He decides that it's a stand, and he finds a bowl that seems to be a perfect match. But he acknowledges that there's a doubt about whether these pieces really belong together. It's unlikely that his answer was correct, that the bee was in fact a bowl stand, but I find myself admiring and applauding his method. Next week, we're focused not on the past, but on modernity. We're looking at the defining characteristics of the 19th century global order mass production, mass consumption, and mass markets. A world dominated by the economic interests of Europe and North America. It's the world that coined the phrase, time is money. And so we're going to begin with the challenge of accurately telling the time through a ship's chronometer. You can see the object described in this programme close up on the A History of the World website, as well as hundreds of others from museums across the UK. And if you have an object with a history to tell, why not add it to our growing collection? Find all this at bbc.co.uk slash world.